Hey, I'm Su Lin Wong, the host of The Prince, and this is our second bonus episode. Since we finished making the series, the Chinese Communist Party's biggest five-yearly meeting has wrapped up in Beijing. So we're here with an update on what comes next for Xi Jinping. He's secured his third term in office, but so much more has happened, and we're going to dissect that today. Joining me for this episode is someone we heard from in the last two episodes of The Prince, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief, David Rennie. Hello. How are you, David? How are your cats? Uh, you know, Party Congress cuts both ways for a reporter's cat. So I had to quarantine for a few days to get into the Great Hall of the People. And at least I hope they miss me when I'm not around. On the other hand, as with all big political events, the pollution completely vanished because they turn off some giant tap somewhere outside Beijing and the skies go brilliant blue. And so that means the windows were open and uh, Ollie and Charlie could watch for birds, which is their happy place. <laughs> Well, that's good. They were able to keep themselves busy while you were busy covering the Congress. So I actually haven't had a chance to go to a party Congress. Can you just describe what it's like? The flippant answer, which is also the real answer, is it's really communist. <laughs> it's uh, There's a giant gold hammer and sickle over the stage. Uh, there's red flags either side. And the Great Hall of the People is actually a pretty cool building. I, I will admit I have a weakness for 1950s gigantic communist architecture, the Great Hall of the People ticks those boxes. So you have to imagine kind of vast marble pillars. Uh, it's on the side of Tiananmen Square, high ceilings, enormous chandeliers, people kind of marching around. If you were kind of designing a film set for a party congress, you would design what this looks like. So can you describe a little bit what it's like being a journalist at the party congress? I know our colleague James Miles talks about how he would often take his opera glasses to party congresses in order to study people's faces in that huge room. What did you notice? So James is a pro and I'm an amateur because I forgot to take binoculars and I had even thought about it. It's true. You are a very long way back. So the main auditorium where the party congress, where we watched Xi Jinping give the main report at the beginning of the Party Congress is a very large room, a bit like being in a kind of huge theatre or an opera house, an effect enhanced by the fact that as a journalist, you're sitting behind the military band who play the Chinese national anthem, a kind of brass band that marches in. Um, we were sitting with a fairly small collection of foreign journalists. There were not a tremendous number there. And there was a little bit of a division between those journalists who loudly applauded Xi Jinping's speech uh, because they are from friendly countries that uh, are happy to applaud and, and the handful of Europeans uh, and a very small number of Americans uh, who don't traditionally applaud political speeches. And it's incredibly stage managed. You arrive very early in Tiananmen Square in a motorcade. We had a meeting with a hand-picked clutch of delegates. There's 2,300 delegates who represent all walks of the party. But in fact, it's kind of a, a loyalty thing. And a lot of them are kind of telegenic delegates. So uh, we had a small group of us were allowed to ask questions of 15 selected delegates who were, there was an astronaut in uniform, there was an Olympic athlete in his Olympic tracksuit, there was a member of a national ethnic minority wearing a kind of silver headdress talking about how you know wonderful life was under Xi Jinping. So it's very much kind of made-for-TV spectacle. Next question, please. From Economist. So everyone who was following the Congress closely will have seen you on state TV being handed a microphone. Hello, I am a reporter from The Economist. 
And I have a question. How will history record this year's 20th National Congress of CPC? Did you know you were going to be picked to ask a question? So I did, and they asked for the questions in advance. This is not a party that likes to take chances. I decided in the end that submitting a completely kind of neutral, straight question was a chance to hear from someone in the Communist Party about how they saw this Congress. And as long as the eventual article said that the questions were pre-screened, then I was kind of explaining transparently to readers. And, you know, I gave myself some small comfort, but maybe it's a fantasy that I have a favorite tie, which is blue and gold, the colors of the Ukrainian flag. And so I, I wore that because I figured if I'm going to be on state TV, I might as well wear the Ukrainian flag on state TV and push back at some of the pro-Russian talking points. <laughs> I like that detail. Well, one moment that made headlines around the world was the rather unceremonious exit from the Party Congress of China's former leader, Hu Jintao. For those of us who follow Chinese politics, it really felt like the height of political drama at an event which is usually so controlled and so scripted. Can you tell us about what happened? Look, it's a reminder that Chinese elite politics is an absolute black box and we do not know what is going on. And we will probably never know what was going on. Now, he is 79. He doesn't look in great health. And the official version is that he was having a health incident and was kind of kindly helped off the top stage. But it was pretty weird. I mean, if you want to kind of imagine an analogy, it would be like a former senior member of the royal family suddenly being escorted out of a coronation just before the coronation begins. It was that weird. And he seemed to be reluctant to leave. And two white-gloved officials led him from the room. And perhaps the kind of most striking thing was how other senior leaders, whose boss he used to be, just looked straight ahead and didn't kind of acknowledge the fact that he was being led out of the room. Now, mm. you know, some people say he was about to kind of criticise what was going on. Some people say, no, 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 it was a health incident. We just don't know. But it was a reminder that this is a world that we see glimpses, but uh, we don't know what's going on in the inside. There is context, which is that the opening address by Xi Jinping to this Congress summed up the state of the Communist Party when he took over back in 2012 and kind of echoing some of the talking points uh, that were the heart of the prince, you know, this point that Xi Jinping felt that he had taken over a party that was in bad shape, that the leadership was weak, and that there was infighting and factions. And he basically spelled that out in his self-congratulatory uh, sort of review of the last 10 years during this party congress. And so that must have been tough listening for that former leader and the people loyal to him, because it was basically his record being trashed. So speaking of infighting and factions and you know, thinking back to 10 years ago when Xi Jinping first took power and there were all these competing factions, can you talk a little bit about Hu Jintao's people and what has happened to them this party congress? So we should be clear that, you know, we've been for some time, as I think, you know, you pointed out in The Prince, that you couldn't talk anymore about a Hu Jintao faction. People used to joke that it was the Xi Jinping faction was the only faction you needed to remember. Having said that, there are senior figures who could, under the usual norms and rules, could have stayed on, could have been given another job, and who were associated at various times in their career with that previous leader uh, who was led out, Hu Jintao. And so, you know, these are often people also associated with kind of worrying about how the economy is doing, being kind of a voice for private businesses in a sort of debate about should the party's control of everything 
be tempered by a concern about entrepreneurs and sort of confidence among business people. So some of those key figures either retired out of the system or actually just kicked out of the Politburo. And if that sounds arcane and a kind of, you know, hard to keep track of, the thing you need to know is that by the time the dust settled and we saw the new standing committee, the new seven top leaders of the Communist Party, it wasn't just mostly Xi Jinping's guys, it was a sweep. It was people whose only real claim to those top jobs is that they are exceptionally close to Xi Jinping and that their exceptional closeness to Xi Jinping appears to outweigh pretty serious mistakes or involvement in some pretty serious kind of own goals by the party, including the gigantic lockdown of Shanghai for more than two months towards the beginning of this year because of COVID, which again, we covered quite correctly as a big political drama in The Prince. The guy in charge of that lockdown, the Shanghai party secretary, got promoted. He is, as far as we can tell, going to be the next premier. And that is not because the people of Shanghai love the role that he played during that painful lockdown. It's because he is exceptionally close to Xi Jinping and is a trusted loyalist. Given the Shanghai lockdown was such a tragedy for so many people in the city, could you talk a bit about why Xi Jinping might have promoted Li Chang anyway? It's fascinating. I think it points to a whole bunch of themes about Xi Jinping that were explored in the podcast. I think number one, Xi Jinping rewards loyalty. Number two, Xi Jinping, his whole machine is not that concerned with 20-something million people in Shanghai being miserable if 1.4 billion Chinese people are kept safe by his beloved zero COVID policy. Remember, you know, all those conversations in the podcast about China is basically a gigantic utilitarian experiment. It is about delivering the maximum benefits for the maximum number of people. And as long as the party has decided that most people are being kept safe and that that is the thing that really matters, then 25 million very unhappy people in Shanghai, they're just outnumbered. And so if you're Xi Jinping, Li Chang's absolute fidelity to the policy, his willingness to keep 25 million people in the most advanced, best connected, most westernized city in mainland China, and to keep them locked down for more than two months, that's not a mistake. That is a sign that the guy does what he's told and sticks to the policy, even when it's difficult and unpopular. And so that's actually in his favor. Now, if you are business people in China, business elites or foreign investors trying to work out what that says about the kind of government, the kind of economic policies he will help run, if you're a real optimist, you will say, well, you know, he tried to keep Shanghai's businesses going. He tried to keep the most important factories going during the lockdown. So, you know, workers were sleeping, you know, camping inside the giant Tesla factory, making cars for Elon Musk in Shanghai because that was so strategic. And so maybe he's a guy who kind of understands the real needs of the most important businesses. But that's at the cost of the individual shopkeepers, the individuals, kind of the grassroots guys on the ground. And that is Xi Jinping's vision, as the podcast explored uh, so well. From the outside looking in, and for many people in Shanghai, the Shanghai lockdown really was a disaster. But from Xi Jinping's perspective, I mean, he thinks that his guy, Li Chang, sort of towed the party line, did what needed to be done to get this city back to 
to zero COVID and is therefore promoting him. So I think, you know, from Xi Jinping's perspective, he has a very different takeaway from, you know, what some in the West thought about the Shanghai lockdown. And, you know, there was speculation that Li Chang would be punished, but obviously the opposite has happened and he's been promoted to the number two guy in China. And look, not for nothing, uh, right at the beginning of that big policy address that Xi Jinping gave at the beginning of the Congress, he talked about the zero COVID policy as an all-out people's war. Now, in an all-out people's war, then the guy who kind of leads you through an unbelievably bloody and violent battle but doesn't surrender, he's your guy, right? This is the kind of detail and analysis you can expect from The Economist China coverage. One thing I really admire about David's reporting is how many Chinese people he speaks to and how accurately and fairly he conveys their perspectives. And that's something that really shines through in his coverage. But if you're not already a subscriber, you will have missed David's brilliant special report on China's foreign policy goals that just came out recently. Well, you're too kind, Zulian, but uh, people should actually subscribe to read my colleagues' excellent coverage of uh, COVID policy or the political influence of China's retired elite, a piece that kind of foreshadowed the hauling out of Hu Jintao from the Congress, or my business colleagues who've been writing about things like the world's biggest booze firm that you may have never heard of. For the best offer, go to economist.com slash Chinapod. One thing that the prince looked at was how ideology works under Xi Jinping and how when he came to power, he really ramped up ideology, not just among party members, but in the lives of ordinary Chinese people, from what school kids studied in their textbooks, in classrooms, to what office workers were expected to discuss during the business day. And listeners may remember Wang Huning from episode four, who wrote a book in the 80s about the decline of America and is considered the guy who led Xi Jinping's ideological campaigns. He's been promoted to a new job, and one of Xi's longtime allies who worked with him in Fujian is taking over Wang Huning's old job. Could you talk a little bit about Wang Huning's new job, his replacement, and what all of this might mean for how Xi Jinping governs China? So we don't know absolutely for sure, but we think that Wang Huning's new job is going to be as head of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, the CPPCC, which is basically the kind of the interface between the Chinese Communist Party and non-party bits of the Chinese sort of economy and society. So top business leaders, uh, celebrities, scientists who are not party members, and then also vitally Chinese diaspora. So the Chinese populations in places like, you know, Canada or Australia or America, we think that Wang Huning is going to be running all of that apparatus. And so it's clearly going to, going to be bringing to it that kind of worldview that you described so well in, in episode four about this guy who'd been in America in the 1980s and decided that America for all its freedoms was actually hurt by those freedoms and that what was really needed for China was a kind of absolute iron fist and a kind of return of ideology. And all we know for sure is that he's been promoted from fifth rank to fourth rank out of the seven members of the Politburo Standing Committee. And it seems like his replacement 
is someone who worked really closely with Xi Jinping to ramp up China's national security complex over the past decade and who Xi Jinping has known for a very long time back from his days in Fujian. And it does seem like, you know, Xi Jinping has promoted a bunch of people he's known from his time in Zhejiang, Fujian, and, you know, people who knew his family back in Shanxi in the party's revolutionary base. That's right. I mean, the remarkable thing about this group of seven well, six men and Xi Jinping who are now running China, is how many of them you can look at their really long-standing connections with Xi Jinping, as you mentioned. You know, they either were serving with him in Fujian or in another province, Zhejiang, or as you say, you know, their father's fought with Xi's father. It really is, I think, a kind of indicator that in a system as centralized as this, where so much is decided by one man who wields so much power, one of the kind of inevitable kind of traps of being that powerful is how do you know who you can trust? Because of course, now you are that powerful, nobody's going to say no to you. Nobody's going to tell you anything other than kind of pretty much undiluted flattery. And so your only kind of source of safety is to go back to people who were allies before they had to be. People who you can trust because they knew you before you were the emperor. And so I think, you know, that's the kind of benign view of appointing all of these loyalists. And it's true that there are some optimists who say, well, now maybe that Xi Jinping has this kind of clean sweep of absolutely loyal people he's known forever, maybe they will feel confident and, you know, they will be more open to have constructive conversations with foreign governments or with business interests because their loyalty is not going to be in doubt. And so they won't have to prove themselves by being kind of defensive. And that's the most optimistic interpretation to put on this kind of team of ultra-loyalists that we see. The problem with that is that, as the podcast explored so well, the history of the Chinese Communist Party, particularly under the last guy to have this much kind of undiluted power, Chairman Mao, is that having super-loyalists doesn't actually deliver a kind of confident, constructive government that can engage in kind of uh, useful dialogue. It just delivers an inner circle that is not getting bad news and is unable to change course when they've made a mistake. Given all of this, what might this mean for how Xi Jinping will govern China going forward? I mean, one of the kind of really interesting questions we have now is this Congress has delivered a kind of complete slate of loyalists. It was really all about Xi Jinping and it was this kind of coronation, if you like, making it clearer than ever that he is the guy and no successor in sight. You know, remember those conversations we had, Sulin, about how you would spot if he'd chosen a successor by looking at the lineup mm. behind him? Yeah. We looked at the lineup behind him, no successor. <laughs> you know, there's no one who's the right age and the right seniority. So he could rule for another 10 years, for life, we don't know. But if you go beyond the kind of the theatre, if you step out of the kind of the cathedral where the coronation is taking place, you know, pick your metaphor, there's a China out there that has some real problems that has a slowing economy, that has growing youth unemployment, that has property market that is in really bad trouble. China's, you know, facing big, big headwinds, very serious problems with the Americans, including kind of really serious new American policies restricting China's access to very high-end technologies. And he's got an intray filled with massive problems. This Congress is all about him and crowning him as the kind of the undisputed Communist Party kind of ruler. But now that's over, 
and the pollution starts to return to the skies over Beijing. Poor Ollie and Charlie. Poor Ollie and Charlie. Um, I think the key takeaway is to understand that in that balance for the Communist Party leadership and above all, Xi Jinping, if you are forced with a choice between political control back inside China and national security and defending China's kind of security interests in a hostile and dangerous world, and if you have to balance that against the idea of economic dynamism and be careful not to hurt private businesses, then he's going to go with control and security every time. And you just need to look at the language used in his extremely security-focused, control-focused political report and the whole kind of structure of the Party Congress. This is a country that is kind of on a kind of defensive footing against a hostile world. Given all these headwinds, what does this mean for China's foreign policy and for the rest of the world? Well, one fascinating thing now is that now that Xi Jinping has had his communist coronation and he has his loyalists in place at home, we think he's going to take a bit of a diplomatic victory lap. So one of the first foreign visitors he was due to meet uh, is Chancellor Olaf Scholz of Germany, uh, due to arrive in Beijing at the beginning of November with a big group of German business leaders. And that's an, a fascinating relationship. Remember in the podcast, we heard about how close Xi Jinping was to Angela Merkel, the longtime Chancellor of Germany, one of the few Western leaders that he really respected. We heard amazing stories about kind of private dinners where she had explained his worldview to Angela Merkel. Well, now Angela Merkel's successor is coming for his first face-to-face meeting with Xi Jinping since taking office. We think she is going to be in Bali for the G20 meeting of world leaders. And there he'll have his first face-to-face meeting, we think, with uh, President Joe Biden since Joe Biden became president. Because remember, apart from a few trips to meet Central Asian leaders and to see Vladimir Putin recently in Central Asia, Xi Jinping has basically not seen anyone in person for the duration of COVID, so nearly three years now. So there is a sense that the world is going to come in. I think some concerns in some corners of the West, certainly Washington, D.C., that Western leaders must not be seen to kind of be paying homage to the newly re-crowned monarch in Beijing, that they must be careful to make sure that they're delivering the right messages to him uh, about things like, you know, make sure you tell the Russians not to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, you know, make sure that you don't give them assistance that we would find very difficult. So there's an attempt to coordinate this diplomatic victory lap. But I think from Xi Jinping's point of view, this is a moment to go out and celebrate his new term of office for five years, 10 years, or maybe forever. And I guess for Chinese diplomats, this is a time where they're going to have to show even more loyalty towards Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. In episode seven, we looked at the rise of wolf warrior diplomacy. And just very recently, we had another example of this, this time in Manchester in the United Kingdom, where there were some extraordinary scenes at the Chinese consulate, where there were protesters standing outside with signs and images, one of Xi Jinping in just a crown and his underwear. And it appears that Chinese diplomats came out and hauled a protester onto the grounds of the Chinese consulate. What do you make of that, David? So there's a murky bit and there's a really simple bit. The murky bit is exactly who sort of punched who first and was the protester dragged onto the grounds to be beaten and, you know, uh, who started the violence, although it's pretty clear there was a peaceful protest by Hong Kong demonstrators before the kind of consul general led some people out, uh, including diplomats in body armor and kind of sort of armored helmets. The simple part is that when China's consul general to Manchester was interviewed by the BBC, 
And uh, he said, oh, we were attacked, we were the victims. And they said, well, hang on, there's video of you pulling the hair of a Hong Kong protester. He then flipped to a proof of loyalty. He said, well, that protester had abused my leader and it was my duty to prevent that. And so I think you hear there the pressures, the incentives on every Chinese diplomat around the world to put visible, audible loyalty to Xi Jinping first, because that is the message they want to send back to Beijing. One thing that really struck me was a couple of days before the party congress, one very brave man hung a banner on a bridge in Beijing criticizing the party and Xi Jinping himself and China's zero COVID policies. But, you know, I do wonder the extent to which we can read anything into that, given it's such a rare protest in a way it proves how the party has really ramped up control that a protest like this attracted so much attention both in China and internationally. I mean, do you think there's much we can read into that, David? So certainly, you know, the podcast was right to focus on China's censorship machine because that was working in absolute overdrive. You know, at one point to smother all reference to this very brief protest, they were censoring phrases like I saw it or bridge. What's really interesting, though, is that even if, as you're quite right, Zulin, you know, this system is designed to make it impossible to know what people here really think, Chinese students at universities around the world are not monolithic. And one of the fascinating developments was that for you know, a long time after that very brief protest, the exact same slogans were being printed and photocopied and stuck around campuses in America, in Canada, Australia, the UK, wherever Chinese students gather in large numbers, and then torn down by other students who are pro-communist party or thought this was bad for China's image. And so you see there that Chinese students overseas, hundreds of thousands of Chinese students overseas, where they are allowed to debate, they do debate, and they are having a kind of live argument about Xi Jinping's coronation as leader for, for potentially for life. One thing I know we've spoken about among the China team at The Economist is what the party under Xi Jinping is doing in terms of blurring the lines between the people of China and the Chinese Communist Party. Could you describe a little bit about what you've observed in terms of how the lines are now being blurred? I mean, the party Congress is always going to be emphasising the centrality of the Communist Party. That's what it's for. But it's the case that, you know, since I was first a reporter posted to China nearly a quarter century ago, the party is so much more visible and so much more self-confident that even outside the week-long party congress, which is naturally, you know, a lot of hammer and sickles flying around and red banners, you know, hung all around China's cities and villages, telling everyone to, to sort of gather around the core of the Communist Party, Comrade Xi Jinping. The prominence of the party, the fact that in his address, Xi Jinping talked about the party's role in managing high technology policies, in making sure that China has world-class scientists, in running you know, every aspect of education policy, that the party members were instructed to struggle against foreign powers that are trying to hold China down, to make sure that China has enough world-class engineers, to make sure that young Chinese people keep fit, listen to the party at all times, and in due course, have lots of babies for the motherland. And so, you know, this was an instruction to the 96 million party members to go out and make sure that there is not a single aspect of life in modern China, that they are not in a leading role. And this is the kind of thing you'll explore in your new show, Drum Tower. That's right. So my colleague Alice Su and I will be looking each week at all aspects of China, politics, culture, history, 
Uh, and in the first episode, we thought we'd start from kind of first principles and look at the row about universal values, that Chinese claim that there's no such thing as universal values, uh, that that's just a cover for Western values. I look forward to hearing it. And we'll hopefully get you on the show from your new posting in Southeast Asia. Yes, I'd love that. So The Economist's new show, Drum Tower, launches next month. The trailer is out now. It's available wherever you get your podcast. So do subscribe or follow us today. And I have to say, The Prince really kind of blazed a trail for us. So here in Beijing, I've been really surprised by how many Chinese people who have to take a risk to listen because, you know, they have to have a VPN to hear us. I've had a lot of feedback, people saying that they have learned things about their own country, their own leader. And, you know, that is a, a pretty kind of humbling bit of feedback to get because we are talking about someone else's country, someone else's leader. So it's been a really positive reaction. That's really, really nice to hear. And I only wish that local journalists in China were able to safely and freely make a Chinese language podcast series about Xi Jinping. But I'm afraid that's not going to be possible, probably for a very long time. This bonus episode might be the end of The Prince, but there's plenty more to learn about China, so we do hope you'll stick around. Search for Drum Tower wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for chatting to me today, David. Thank you for having me.